able to look back and see a catalog of answered prayer in your life. Uh, we are his children, he's our father, and he delights in hearing and answering our prayer. Do you join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this evening? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll look at the very last verse. We'll get some context here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 31. I trust you had a restful afternoon and uh, looking forward to our time together this evening in the Word and fellowship as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 31. Apostle Paul says, But covet earnestly or desire earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never faileth. And then notice verse number 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then, talking about in our glorified state in heaven, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. I'd like to preach a message this evening based on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 31, a message entitled, The Way of Love the way of love. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, strengthen us as we look into your word this evening. I pray that you'd do a deep and abiding work in us, change us to be more like Jesus Christ in our interactions with one another. Lord, help us to realize that the descriptions that we've just read, that is what love is, and that is how it acts. And Lord, if there are times when my life is not acting in that way, it's because I'm not acting in love. Lord, I pray that you would confront maybe some self-deception in our lives this evening or some areas where we need to grow. Lord, areas where we need to be encouraged, I pray that you would strengthen us through your word. And I pray that the Spirit of God would be talking to every heart here through the word of God. I thank you for the assurance that the Spirit of God never says anything that is different than what the word of God says. And I pray that he would work through the word of God tonight to make us more like Christ. And thank you, Lord, for the assurance, too, from Revelation 2 and 3 and John 21 and other passages that you meet with us tonight. That You are here. You're the Lord of this church. You are in our presence and we in yours. And I pray that we would listen and respond in the reality of that. And I pray these things in your precious name. Amen. The Apostle Paul speaks of love, as you know, as the more excellent way. 
And he wanted to show that to the Corinthians. It's uh, the idea of to prove by evidence or to demonstrate by evidence that love is the more excellent way. Of course, our King James Version uses the English word charity. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's come to mean less today than it did in 1611 when the King James Version translators used it. It uh, translates the Greek word agape, which speaks of a an unconditional and a selfless love. And, uh, we could uh, talk more about that at another time. The word charity, the English word charity, comes from a Latin word charis or caritas, which means dear. And it's the idea of it's not charity in the sense of just giving a little bit of money to some noble cause. The word charity in its Latin roots that the King James Version translators used uh, was a much deeper word than we understand it today. It's the idea of my regarding you as someone dear to me and then treating you accordingly. Now, now get this, get this. That doesn't mean that that necessarily means that everybody's going to be easy to regard as dear. How many of you agree there are some people easier to regard as dear than others? Okay, But love... Biblical charity is regarding others as dear, even if they're not naturally dear to me. Okay. Now, that automatically moves this to a, an exalted plane, and I realize I can't do this in and of myself, can I? That's why the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, Galatians 5.22. It's the work of God's Spirit in me. I've defined love in the last uh, several months this way. Love, biblical love, is giving of the best that I have in my attitude, my actions, and my assets. Giving of the best that I have, my attitude, actions, and assets. That is, I love people, not just my actions because it's expected or it looks good, but I love people with my attitude, with my heart, too. Okay. That love begins with a right heart attitude. But I give the best that I have for the benefit of another without thought of return. Aren't you glad Jesus loved you that way and loves you that way? Okay. And then I notice this too as we work through the introduction before we get into the body of the message. Verse number 31, Paul said, But covet earnestly, it's the idea of desire strongly or above everything else, the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent, what's the word? Way. In other words, love is just not a periodic, occasional event or action. Love is a way of living. It is a way of thinking. When I think about a way, I think about a route of travel. How many of you, when you plug into your phone, you're going somewhere you've maybe never been before? It's been a while. And uh, I mean, for me, even occasionally, when I go to somewhere in Greenville I've never been before, I'll plug in the address. Or recently, Gracie and I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee for a mission board meeting, and I plugged in the address for BIMI in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it gave me three different ways to get there. Three different routes of travel. Are you with me? Okay. One took me down 85 through Atlanta. That one was easily and very quickly culled from my options. Okay. The other one is the way that I normally go. It is up to 40 and then 40 over uh, to Knoxville and 75 down to Chattanooga. But Dr. Godfrey, J.B. Godfrey, many of you know, has been trying for years to get me to take the road less traveled. 
and to take 64 by Cherokee and over through the Nantahala Valley and you go through towns like, is it Duckworth and Topton and places like that? You go by Lake Ocoee, okay? I'm telling you, uh, who was it I recently heard say this? If you, uh, oh, Dr. Comfort said this morning, you said, if you live in West Virginia, you live on a curve, okay? It's perpetual curves, it seems like. It takes an hour longer that way does and yet the scenery is far better. How many of you have been that way before? The scenery is far better than boring old Interstate 26, 40, and 75, especially that stretch from south of Knoxville on over to Chattanooga. That's like one of the most boring stretches of interstate. Maybe only one other place more boring is Interstate 70 between St. Louis and Kansas City, Missouri. But a way, it's a route of travel. It's not just an occasional or periodic action. It's a way of living. And you choose a way or a route when you're traveling based on the scenery, based on stops you want to make along the way, based on shopping, based on wanting to see someone that you know and love. Most of us choose a way based on the speed limit. What's going to get me there in the shortest amount of time? And all God's people said, okay. Away. And so, get this, away is not occasional or periodic interactions. Away that Paul is talking about is a route that we travel that is a way of living. And let me tell this, the way of love is not always the easiest way, but Paul said it is the more excellent way. It's not always the neatest way, but it is the more excellent way. One commentator I read in preparation for the message tonight said that chapter 13 of Corinthians, the love chapter as we call it, is one of the greatest digressions in all of history. Paul was really good at digressions. Like right in the middle of a subject, bringing up something that almost seemed unrelated. Okay. In chapter 12, he introduces the subject of answering questions that the members of the church at Corinth had about spiritual gifts, tongues, and prophecy, and all these others. And he would pick that subject up again in chapter number 14. So 12 and 14, both dealing with the abuses of spiritual gifts, a right understanding of the spiritual gifts in the local church, the difference between temporary gifts and then lasting gifts and so on. But right in the middle, in almost what seems to be a digression... Paul gives us this wonderful chapter on love. And one commentator called it the greatest, most wonderful digression ever. And in it, he shows us, and just as he did the members of the church at Corinth, he shows us a way of thinking, a way of living towards others, get this, that is beyond all comparison. There is no better way than to live the way of love. Towards others. So the question then is why is love the more excellent way? First of all, as I think about this passage in the context of 1 Corinthians as a whole, love is the more excellent way, number one, because it is the solution to every problem. Love is the solution to every problem. Now, that doesn't mean every problem is going to get solved, but at least when I love like I should, it's going to help solve my end of the problem, so to speak. And then praise God for those times when there's a mutual response of love and then the problem as a whole is completely solved. As you think about the book of 1 Corinthians, you want to talk about a church that was fraught with problems. 
And we've teased about this before. I don't know why anybody, unless they're in a city called Corinth, would in the 21st century name their church Corinth Baptist Church. They're either, it was funny when I mentioned that several weeks ago, one of the guys in the church on a job saw a Corinth Baptist church and took a picture of it and sent it to me with a big laughing face, okay. Corinth Baptist Church, and I've joked and said, when a church does that, either they don't know their Bible very well or they're being more honest than the rest of us are, okay. But think about the problems in the church at Corinth. Right away, chapter number one, Paul said there are divisions, there are contentions among you, and it's over personalities. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And then the really spiritual one said, I'm of Christ. Okay. The divisions and the contentions in the church that Paul had not only heard reported by the house of Chloe, but also he had received written correspondence from the church at Corinth with some questions about some of these problems. So he had two sources, what he had heard and what he had read in the letter. And he acknowledges, he addresses right at the very beginning these divisions, these contentions over personalities. And then moving into chapter number 3, he indicates that the reason there were divisions and contentions is because these Corinthian believers were carnal. Brother Comfort mentioned that this morning. The word carnal comes from the word carne, which is the word for meat. Carnivorous. How many of you are carnivorous? Okay, you like to eat meat, all right? I'm carnivorous. I don't mind eating meat. I love meat. But it literally, the, the idea, the reason it's used in reference to people, it's the idea of tasting. Paul's point in calling these believers carnal, carnal is that when people taste you, you taste like the world. If you're carnal, you don't taste like Jesus. Okay, let, 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 let that stick in our brains, Okay. A carnal person is someone that when a lost man or a fellow believer interacts with them, what they taste is not the character of Christ, but they taste the attributes of the character of the world. Okay. So there's carnality. Paul would warn them. He said, you're puffed up one against another. So they're dividing the church up in cliques, surrounded around personalities. In chapter number 5, another problem, the church had become tolerant of fornication. A man living in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. In chapter 6, believers in the membership of the church were taking each other to court. They couldn't solve their problems in a spiritual manner. Paul said, "Why don't you, you need to just allow yourself to be wronged or defrauded. But instead, they're taking each other to court. Chapter 7 indicates that there were strained issues in uh, the marriages of the church at Corinth. And some married couples were wanting to live celibate instead of ministering to each other, as God intended. On the other extreme, there were those who were looking for an easy divorce or a way out of a marriage. And so there were major marriage problems. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, there were believers that were abusing their liberty as it came to eating meat offered to idols. And then the ones who were offended by that were despising the ones who were using their liberty. Chapter 11, they were having fights and arguments over haircuts and head coverings. Really? Chapter 11, we find that there were abuses of the Lord table, Lord's table, the communion. The Apostle Paul had to address the fact that some of the rich members of the church were coming to this love feast and they were basically gluttonizing and they were not sharing with the poor members of the church who didn't have any food to bring to the church dinner. 
And then they would follow up with the Lord's table. And on top of that, people were coming to the Lord's table drunk. Members of the church at Corinth. And then chapters 12 and 14, you're like, whoa. (laughs) Thank God for crossroads. Amen? Okay. There was misunderstanding and abuse of the spiritual gifts. So these were problems. And Paul says the solution... Not just to the spiritual gift issue in chapter 12 and 14, but to all of these problems, the solution is this more excellent way of love. The giving of myself, the best that I have, my attitudes, actions, and assets for the benefit of another without thought of return. Now you think about possible solutions that human thinking could have come up with to this whole laundry list of problems we just mentioned. There could have been party domination where one group said, we're just going to strong arm everybody else into our position. Forced conformity. Uh, There were those who would have said, you know, we just need to press the case and win that court case. Uh, There were some who would have said, you know what, let's just lower the standard toleration and call it love. On the other extreme, you'd have probably had those in the church at Corinth said, no, 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 we need to go full on legalistic and make a rule about that. There are some who may have said, and we hear this and see this kind of thing in our own day. Some would say, you know what? If that event is going to cause conflict, if the Lord's table is going to cause such confusion and conflict, let's just cancel it. Not even have it. You can see how human reasoning may go that way. Some may have said or would say, live and let live. Some might say, let's just leave and go to the Second Baptist Church of Corinth. Let's give a cold shoulder, marginalize those people that aren't uh, in my camp or party lining with me, let's just marginalize them. We can go to church and not speak. But Paul says, in the middle of the middle of the middle of all the problems of the church at Corinth, he said, love is the more excellent way. It's the way beyond all comparison. It's the solution to every problem. Several years ago, we were hauling a load of my uh, former father-in-law's items before he went to be with the Lord uh, down to Florida, Tampa. He was living in St. Pete Beach. And uh, we were hauling down, uh, Jenny and the kids and I, uh, with the Suburban, our old Suburban and the U-Haul trailer. And I got about, uh, I think, two or three hours north of Tampa, and we found out later that the wheel bearing had gone out on the front passenger side, and it just seized up, and that vehicle would not go anywhere. I thought the transmission went out. I had to pay $250 to get towed eight miles. And I thought right then, you know what, if it's going to cost me that much to get towed, I'm not paying some guy to fix my transmission being out of state and over a barrel. So I called a good friend who happens to be sitting here this evening who had a big diesel truck and a flatbed trailer. And I said, hey, can you come get us? Thankfully, it was raining here. Jesse got in his vehicle, drove 10 hours or so to get down there to get us where we were, north of Tampa, and was a tremendous blessing. We dropped the flatbed trailer, put the Suburban on it, hooked up to the U-Haul, took it on down to Tampa, unloaded it, turned it back in down there, played in the water for a little bit, slept the night, got up the next morning, came back through, picked up the trailer with the Suburban on it, started home and stopped in Lake City, Florida, I believe it was, for breakfast at a Cracker Barrel. And we had to be home by church the next day, so we knew it was going to be a late night anyway getting back here. 
And uh, we had gone in, the family and I had gone in to start breakfast order, and Jesse said, I'm just going to sit out here under a tree and sleep for a few minutes, okay? Well, a few minutes later, he called me from the outside, and he said, you're not going to believe what I just did. I just locked the key in the truck. I'm thinking, this is a great start, and i got to preach in the morning. we got a long drive. So I just pull up my smartphone, and I Googled locksmith, and first guy I saw, bam, I clicked him, up came his number, I called him, and he said to me, he said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Sure enough, 10 minutes, he came rolling up, and he was not impressive. Can I just say that? Let your imagination take that where you want, okay? He was not impressive. He pulled up in this little bitty old banger Toyota pickup truck, that super long bed, that small version and tires about this big around, Okay, he showed him this little Toyota pickup truck and he gets out and I'm not kidding you. Now, I've been accused of this myself, but when he got out of the vehicle, the first thought that crossed my mind, this guy is textbook geek. He had a pocket protector and all of his little tools stuck right in his pocket. And uh, I mean, he just looked the part. I mean, he looked like he if you looked in the dictionary, his picture would be at the word geek. Okay. And anyway, he walks up, he pulls one little prod out of his pocket walks up, sticks it in the lock, jimmies it, and grabs the door and opens it, and turns around and looks at us and goes. <laughs> I, I think all that was, we tried figuring out what was going on in his brain. But for literally one little tool in a door, he was not out of his truck a minute before he got back in. I figured out it was $45 for one minute of work. It was like, I think it was like, if you total it all up, that's about $2,700 an hour. But you know what? He had the key that was the solution to our problem. And I want you to understand something. Love is the solution to every problem, and all of us, by the power of God's Spirit and the example of Christ, have the key of love. Love is the solution to every problem. I want you to notice, secondly, why is love the more excellent way? Because love is the substance of all of our practice, or should be. It is the substance. It's that which adds weight, sticking power, meaning to all of our practice. Notice, if you would, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, Paul gives a series of hypothetical situations. Speaking with the tongues of men and of angels and having the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge and having all faith so that mountains could be removed, so that the impossible could be done and bestowing all of his goods to feed the poor and giving his body to be burned as a martyr, so to speak. This list of hypothetical practices, get this, that were based on, I believe, two things. First of all, the, the Corinthians' evaluation of what was a big deal. Remember, they were fighting over these spiritual gifts, which were the most important. And Paul's essentially saying, I don't care which one you have. If you exercise it without love, you're nothing, and it is sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. And then from a human perspective or a religious perspective, what we might consider the apex or the zenith of service to others and sacrifice for others, and ministry to others. Paul makes it clear that in any of these hypothetical situations, if you do them without love, 
You're become a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. You're nothing. The word literally means not one thing. A zero. And in the end, he said, it profits you nothing. Uh, It's the idea of being useful for nothing. Love is being viewed here as a motivation for our action. Get this that carries us all the way as a believer to how we will answer and be viewed at the judgment seat of Christ. The motivation of love. I won't take the time to go through a long list of other motivations that drive people even in Bible Christianity. The desire to earn favor. The desire to be noticed. The desire to have influence. And on and on the list could go, but Paul says love is the one that gives substance to everything that we do. Gifts of speech, spiritual gifts to the body. I remember hearing a preacher say this years ago, and it still astounds me to think about it. And you can go back to chapter number 1 of 1 Corinthians and see this, and it's the idea of this. Do you understand that all of us who are believers have a spiritual gift? And you can exercise a spiritual gift without being spiritual. Paul said to the church at Corinth, you have all the gifts, everything, you have them all, they're all there, but you're carnal, you're not spiritual. What a caution for us. Spiritual gifts and ministry to the body that plumb the depths of knowledge and understand all mystery, the deep things of God and faith so that mountains could be moved. Someone who can, by faith, do the impossible. And yet Paul says even with faith, even with understanding, even with the tongues of men and of angels, even if you notice this, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. This is not talking about one grand act where somebody just on a whim says, you know, I'm going to give everything that I have to feed the poor. The word bestow that Paul uses here is the calculated, thoughtful, daily, consistent giving away even in small increments over a lifetime of benevolence. It's not just something that hits a person on a whim, but a person who's calculated in their giving. And yet if it's done without love for some other motive, it's nothing. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, Uriah, where are you, buddy? Come up here and help me. I asked his permission to use him in an illustration. Uriah, why don't you come just stand right here? I have a gift I'm going to give you. Okay, now I want you to think spiritual gift and the exercise of the spiritual gift in the local church. Tongues, obviously that one's passed away according to the scriptures. But being a blessing, ministering to others, okay? I'm going to give you a gift, okay? You ready for this? Okay, just stand right there. I hope you brought your muscles to church tonight because this one is heavy. Are you ready? Now, I'm going to give you something that's actually worth something. There's a $10 bill. You want this is just full of packing paper. You want this too? No. It's a gift. It has the appearance of one, but it's nothing. Now, that's an illustration for us, isn't it? You give without love, and there's a sense in which the substance of whatever giving you do, it's gone, it's nothing. But did you notice that's not what Paul says? Paul said it's not the gift 
that is nothing. It's the giver. Now think about that. Paul didn't say the gift is nothing. That's the mercy of God that sustains the benefit of the gift for the receiver, even if the motive wasn't right in the part of the giver. But Paul said the one that's empty is not the gift. The one who's empty is the giver. And love is the more excellent way because when I have the motive of love, the giving of myself, the best that I have for the benefit of another without thought of return, and I give completely my life and love for others and the gifts that God has given to me and the resources that I have, when I give like that in attitude, action, and asset, that is what adds substance to what I do. Thank you, Uriah. I'm sorry that $10 bill isn't worth today what it was 20 years ago. But enjoy it. For whatever motive other than love that a person gives, get this, if it's done without love, can I say it this way? It hollows me out. It guts me of any substance especially when it comes to standing at the judgment seat of Christ before the Lord and giving an answer. So the way of love is the more excellent way because it's the solution. It's, it's the way beyond all comparison because it's the solution to every problem. It's the substance. It gives substance to our practice. But I want you to notice, thirdly, it shapes our perspective so that we look at people like Jesus does. You see this in the catalog of characteristics of love. Verse 4 down to verse number 7, there are 14 attributes or characteristics of love that Paul lists. Many of you may have memorized these as children. One commentator I read, and you can go back and look at this, mentioned, noted the point that of the 14, there are 7 positive and 7 negative. Any electrician will tell you that you've got to have positive and negative both in order to have full current. Okay. There are some things that love does. And there are some things that love doesn't do. Okay. And by the way, there's a list. <laughs> we talk about lists. Oh, we don't lists. We don't live by lists. Actually, we do. They're in the Bible. Okay. There's some lists here. But love shapes our perspective. And I really think the first character or the characteristic given in verse number eight, charity never faileth, is kind of a capstone characteristic to these fourteen. Let me just briefly move through these. Just take a few minutes to do this, and then we'll move to a final point and a conclusion. Love is the more excellent way. It's the way beyond all comparison because it shapes our perspective so that we look at others like Jesus and we love like Jesus does. Love is long-suffering. It suffereth long. It's the idea of being long-fused. The Greek word's macrothumia. It's the idea of you, can, you light it and it just keeps burning, 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 and it never touches off the dynamite. We need to be long-suffering. That's what love is. Aren't you glad that the Lord was long-suffering and still is with us? Okay. Love is kind. Verse number four. It's the idea of being mild and gentle in our interactions with other people. I'm going to close the message with an illustration that comes from this word kind. But love is mild and gentle. Paul said, I beseech you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And Christ said he was meek and lowly of heart. The idea of gentle and lowly in his heart. 
love is, notice this, he said it envieth not. It's not jealous or envious of anything or anyone. Nothing that someone else has, nothing that someone else is. Then he says this, love vaunteth not itself. This is the idea of being a braggart in our talk. Have you ever found yourself making yourself the star or the center of your story? It's not love. I have before, and man, I'm glad when this, it hurts, but I'm glad when the Spirit of God says, this isn't about you. Okay. Our talk, charity vaunteth not itself. It's not a braggart in its conversation. Is not puffed up. It's inflated, looking bigger than I am in order to intimidate other people. Okay. Love is not in its talk big or in its walk big. Paul goes on to say this, it doth not behave itself unseemly. Love is not rude is the idea. It's not brash. Get this, love doesn't cause other people to blush. It doesn't cause embarrassment. When love interacts with others, it doesn't cause others to go or to blush at the way something was said or the way it was acted. Love doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. We could save that characteristic that love is not first in its considerations, but in honor prefers others better than themselves. Love is not easily provoked. It's the idea, it's a very broad word. It's love is not touchy. Love is not sensitive, overly sensitive. Love is not easily irritated or offended. If you're easily irritated, if a person's easily irritated or easily offended, it's not love that's motivating that. Love thinketh no evil. The word thinketh comes from our word or is related to our word for logic or to log something. It's to put it in a category in order to keep record. So when Paul says love thinketh no evil, it's the idea of love doesn't charge evil to the account of another person and then, get this, store it up or bear malice in my memory bank against that person. That's one. That's two. That's not love. As we move further through the list... It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Obviously, the clear application, love does not rejoice in sin. And may I add to it, it does not rejoice in the consequences of sin. Love doesn't say they got what they deserved. That's not love. But it rejoiceth in and together with the truth. When I see truth at work in a person's life, even if they don't look exactly like me, even if maybe they're not as far along in the Christian life as I am, maybe a new believer, maybe someone from a little bit of a different stripe of Christianity, but when I see truth at work, love rejoices in that. Okay. Love beareth all things. It's an interesting word. It's the idea of covering and protecting or providing a cover or protection and literally bearing up the roof like a pillar, bearing up a roof of protection, a cover of protection over someone else. In other words, when I love like I should, I'm going to, if I can say it this way, I'm going to be a roof of protection over you to protect you, to look out for you and you for me. 
love bears all things. I heard a great story this week as we think about bearing one another's burdens. I read it. A town was uh, having to be evacuated because of rising floodwaters, and we've seen some of that in the news recently over in Kentucky. And the mayor of the town was just brokenhearted as he's directing his people in evacuation of the town. And as he was standing there directing the evacuation, he noticed a little boy carrying a suitcase in each hand walking through the ankle-deep water. And he had his little brother on his shoulders. And as he's struggling to carry those two suitcases and walk through that rising flood water and then the weight of his little brother on his back, the mayor just got to him and he couldn't help it. And he walked over and he choked up and he patted that little boy on the head and he said, son, I'm so sorry that you have to carry this heavy burden and have to go through this. And that you're having to carry all this weight. And the little boy looked up at him and he said, he's my brother. He's not heavy. We are brothers and sisters. We shouldn't be heavy to each other. Love bears all things. It believes all things. The idea of believing the best. It hopes all things. And I believe voices encouragement. I read a great quote this week. Encouragement is like peanut butter. How many of you like peanut butter? Encouragement is like peanut butter. The more you spread it around, the more it helps everything to stick together. Love endureth all things. A very specific application of this is that it endures the unloving actions of others. Love endures unloving actions and keeps loving. Charity never fails. Listen to these different uh, definitions. It never quits. It never expires. It never falls out of use. It never goes out of style. It never wilts, it never, never idles down, it never gets put aside because it's no longer useful. It's never, uh, there's never a time when it won't be needed. There's never a time when it will cease to be effective. Marshall Morgan, years ago, when I was visiting him, walked out. He was carrying this massive drill. It looked like one of those crank drills that carpenters used to use, except this one was massive. I mean, it was like six feet tall. It was heavy, almost heavier than a man could carry. And it had this series of the turnstile handles like this and this massive drill bit on it. He asked me, he said, do you know what that is? I said, no, I don't know, but man, it must have been a man carpenter that used that thing. He said, this is an old quarry drill for boring pilot holes in rocks in order to section out marble and granite and rock. And I remember looking at that and thinking, I'm glad that that's not the way they drill in quarries now. You see, antiques, as wonderful as they may be, there comes a time when they were set aside because something better and more effective has come along. But I want you to understand tonight, when it comes to the way of love, there will never be a time when it ceases to be effective. Love will never become an antique. Why the more excellent way? Love is the solution to every problem. It's the substance of our practice. It's the shaping of a Christ-like perspective. And then fourthly and finally, and I'll close, it is the sweetness of our prospect. What is our prospect? Our prospect is our anticipation of the future. Notice, if you would, verses 12 and 13. For now, chapter 13, for now we see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know. Talking about the glorified state and getting to heaven. Then shall I know even as also I'm known. And now, do you notice those adverbs there? 
those particles with the adverbial idea now and then and now and then. There's this contrast between what is the case right now and what will be the case then. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Why the distinction between faith, hope, and love? Why the distinction? Especially talking about how things are now and how things will be then. Why is love greater than faith and hope? Can I tell you among several reasons? One, why love is greater than hope and faith? Because there's a day coming, folks, when we will not need faith or hope anymore. There's a day coming when faith will be turned to perfect sight. When I step foot on heaven's shore and I see Christ face to face. I don't need hope anymore because Paul even said in the book of Romans, hope that is seen is not hope. Why do you yet hope for it? Once you've realized the object of your hope, hope no longer is necessary. But get this, love is forever. Love, can I say it this way, is the foundational attribute of our heavenly existence. Apostle Paul said it's the desire of God in saving us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Jonathan Edwards is known for what famous sermon? Somebody say it if you know it. July the 7th, 1841, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached in Enfield, Connecticut, really sparking the Great Awakening. And yet detractors have used that message to be critical of hellfire and damnation preaching. And yet what people fail to realize, that's not the only message Jonathan Edwards ever preached. Do you know that almost equally as famous, Jonathan Edwards preached a message on heaven. And the title of the message was Heaven, A World of Perfect Love. I kind of smile to think this, and maybe not either. I think heaven's going to be a shock to some believers' system. I think about some believers who've been on the receiving end of unloving actions from other believers. And to finally get to heaven (laughs) and all the obstacles, the impediments to the full flow of love from others are going to be removed and love is going to overwhelm. Not the cheap, shallow, wishy-washy version, but biblical love, God's love is going to overflow in heaven. I think about some believers, miserable believers, who've lived their life with a critical spirit and bitterness, viewing everybody else skeptically and cynically, having trouble with those kinds of things, battling them, giving in to them. It might take them about 100 years to actually get used to loving people. Thank God for glorification, right? We're going to need all the help we can get. But love, the thought of love, sweetens the prospect of our future. It makes me long for home. And love won't be hard work anymore like it is now. To live above with uh, saints I love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with some saints I know, now that's a different story. I didn't start liking steak until I was about 16 years old. I remember as a little kid not liking steak. 
And you might be sitting there thinking, what is wrong with this child's upbringing? Now, if my dad were standing here right now, I would tell this. Okay, In his presence, we'd laugh about it. He's gotten better at it, but man, when I was a kid, dad, there was something major missing when it came to the steak grilling process. Okay, It was like eating shoe leather, digging out of your teeth. I just didn't like it. I was because my frame of reference was marred seriously. Okay, Dad would cook steak until it looked done. Now let me just say this: if you cook steak and scrambled eggs, or the other thing, if you cook those two things until they look done, you've cooked them too long. Okay, all right. I'm glad to hear. Can I get a witness? All right, we got that tonight. All right. <laughs> But listen, when I got my middle teen years, and then when Jenny and I got married, and man, they were family was all about steak, juicy steak, okay, well marinated and seasoned, grilled to perfection. Then I had some of those in my late teen years. People would start taking me out for a meal, the farmer that I worked for, we'd go. And I remember in those middle to late teen years, eating my first couple of good steaks and thinking, I've been robbed. It's been this good all along in other places, and I missed it. I don't want to get to heaven, the world of perfect love, and look back on this life and God's provision for us to love each other the way that we should now and say, man, we could have done a whole lot better. I could have done, I could have experienced the blessing of love both in the giving and the receiving of it better if I'd have just known, if I'd have lived. Are you with me? Okay. So my question to us tonight as we close is why wait? Love is the birthmark of God's people, one man said. It's the uniform of God's people. If I was standing up here or you saw a man come in here in a long black robe, you would say he's a judge. You see a man come in in a blue or a brown uniform with a badge, you would say he's a police officer. A guy in a long white robe, you would say likely he's a medical doctor, something like that. Okay? His uniform identifies him. Judson quoted the verse earlier in the service while we were singing. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if ye have one to another. One man said this, love is the final apologetic for Christianity. In other words, when all of the answers and all of the arguments and all of the reasons that appeal to a man's brain don't accomplish their intended goal, love is the final apologetic for Christianity. And then he said this, it is the defense of Christianity against which there is no defense. The pagans of the first and the second century would in awe look at how our forefathers in the faith interacted with each other, even in their difficult circumstances, and they would say, behold, how they love each other. They're willing to lay down their lives for each other. In verse number four, Paul said, charity suffereth long and is kind. I'm going to give you this, and I'm done. Okay, we're wrapping this up. Love is kind. 
I was blown away. I found this in a book I have in my library that's a pretty technical book, and I was shocked to actually get something really good like this out of it. Okay. It's a lot of Greek and Latin, which I can't, I just skip over that, the Latin part. But the, the, the authors of the book made an interesting point. When they were defining that word kind, the original Greek word, in, in the first century, the Greek word for Christian, I want you to stick with me on this, okay, and, and I'm finished. The Greek word for Christian, and I'm just going to pronounce it in our modern vernacular, is Christianos or Christiani. Okay, you can hear the connection between that Greek word and the word, our English word Christian. The Greek word for kind, which means mild and gentle, listen to this, is Christianei. Christianei, kind, mild, gentle. Christian, Christianos, or Christiani. The pagans of the first century were so overwhelmed by the love of Christians, not only for one another, but for themselves. This book said that there's historical record where the pagans created a play on words or their own pun as a commendation to Christians. And they didn't just call them Christiani or Christianos Christian. They called them Christianei, kind, mild, gentle. Because the characteristic of love so described these people who called themselves Christians that they made this connection and characterized believers by their love. By their kindness. By their mildness. By their gentleness to each other. Yet, I show unto you a more excellent way. And that way is love. Father, I pray that we would take what we've heard tonight and let it soak deeply into our hearts and our minds, burn indelibly, that it would be our trademark, our birthmark as Christians, and that we would say, as we're going to sing here to conclude, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. And I pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.